I'm going to throw up four people on the screen, and I want to see how many of these four people we can get. So this is going to be our second slide of our sermon. Who can name all four of these? Anybody can do all four? Zero people. Austin Loud doesn't count because I told him these. <laughs> Dirk Nowitzki. Number two is who? Who's the baseball player? Come on, we know this. Carl Yastrzemski, thank you. Number three, anybody, anybody know the Detroit Lions? No, no one cares about the Lions. That's, I think, their problem. That's been the problem with the Detroit Lions forever. Jason Hansen. And finally, another, not Gordy Howe, it's Alex DeVecchio. Now, these four players, what do these four players have in common? They played for one team their entire career the longest. 21 seasons, 22 seasons, 24 seasons. When we look at legacy, so often we think of legacy, so often we think of what kind of impact am I going to leave? And we think of a lot of things when we think of this. We think of uh, merit and achievement. But what about the word longevity? Do we ever think of longevity? When you have a career, when we think of some of those people, now, Dirk Nowitzki was a wonderful basketball player, won a championship. Carl Yastrzemski, sorry, the impossible dream, friends, right? We didn't quite get there. But when we think of legacy, not the only thing that matters is simply achievement. Sometimes when we look at longevity, sometimes that can be a hugely defining part of our legacy. Simply, imagine this. Imagine I was talking to someone the other day, we were at Starbucks, and he said, you know, I have a friend who just retired after 47 years in the same factory. 47 years in one job. We're at a time where we had this whole great recession where people bounced around, and no shame, but look at the longevity of, wow, I bloomed where I planted. I started out as a teenager in a factory, 47 years, rose through the ranks, assembly line. Lower management, upper management, one factory, getting to know people. Longevity can be an incredibly awesome thing. Sometimes when we look at the scripture, we have to be very careful because we don't believe in a gospel of what's called prosperity. We don't believe that if I give my life to Jesus, um, that means that I'm going to be a millionaire necessarily. It doesn't mean that when I give my life to Jesus, I'm going to have prosperity in this world. However, when we look at themes in scripture... Longevity is a theme we start to see, whether it's longevity for myself, whether it's longevity for my family, whether it's longevity for my church. And we look and we say, wow, I have an opportunity to be part of something that is going to be faithful and serve God for years for a long period of time. Now, when we look at this idea of longevity, the greatest leadership coach at one point was a, in, 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 corporate America, was a pastor named John Maxwell. Do we have any John Maxwell fans? There's my John Maxwell super fan. So John Maxwell says that longevity comes down to three ideas. You can have longevity if you have these three things. And we'll throw them up on the screen. Character, competence, and consistency. And these are very biblical ideas. Character, competence, consistency. I'm not talking about being the greatest of all time, because when we think of longevity, those players that I put up at the very beginning, those players didn't have necessarily the most amazing careers. They had the most 
consistent careers. They had the most competent careers. And when we think of some of those players, we look at their character, the way they led, the way they served, the way they made a difference. Now, what does this all have to do with where we are? We are going through the Bible, and I joke about how we're done with Leviticus. Anybody enjoy being out of Leviticus? Who misses Leviticus? Anybody want to go back there? There's a, a, we can have a Bible study for you right now. You can go out there. You can read Leviticus 18 again. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 18 today. Now, here's a problem that we have in our life, because when we look at longevity, can we all agree this idea of longevity sounds good? Does this sound good in my, in my marriage? Anybody want to have a really long marriage? Do I have anybody who's been married 50 years here? Longevity. Amen? Okay. Do I, have anyone, do I have anyone who's been a Christian for 50 or more years? Longevity. Okay? So as we see, this is a biblical idea. There are certain ideas in our culture we throw out. We say, those don't work. This is an idea that works. Longevity matters. This is an important thing. But we have this problem. It's hard to stay the course. It's hard to stay the course. It's hard to live faithfully year after year. We have this problem. We're going to throw it up on the screen. It's easier to be one and done, right? Valentine's Day. Who, who just had Valentine's Day? Oh, anybody forget that? Okay. It's really easy to pay $39 for roses, $120 for a meal, get a card, extra chocolates one time. Can we all agree it's easy to do that one time? It's hard to consistently love and serve my spouse. It's hard to stay the course and live faithful. It's easy to say, hey, I'm here. Congratulations, everybody. We're in church, okay? And if you're joining with us online, you're in church that way too. It's easy, or maybe not so easy, but it's doable to come to church. It's harder to stay the course and live faithfully and consistently come to church, consistently get involved in a small group, consistently serve in the community, consistently find someone to mentor, to make a difference. Maybe it's my child. Maybe it's someone that I can be a spiritual father to. It's hard to stay the course and live faithfully year after year. But if we look at this idea of longevity, this is something we have the opportunity to do. It's easy to make a good movie and follow it up with a bad sequel. Jaws 2. Anybody love the movie Jaws 2? Who's actually seen Jaws 2? It was awful. Okay, let's try another one. U.S. Marshals. Anybody know The Fugitive? There's a super bad movie called U.S. Marshals. It's super easy to follow up a good movie with a bad one. We do that in our lives. It's super easy to do something well and then lose the consistency, the character, the competence. It's hard to have that longevity. How I live today determines my longevity. That's our big idea for today. We'll write that down. We'll jot it down. How I, I love that he's thinking about it. Hmm. Let's think about this. And we're going to look right in the moment in the Scripture. How I live today determines longevity. I'm going to use this idea later. I want you to imagine there's a line. And on one side, there's longevity. And on one side, there's losing it. We always have to walk that tightrope, and we always have to say, you know, how I, how I treat my spouse privately matters, how I treat my spouse publicly matters, today and tomorrow and the next day. How I treat my children privately matters and publicly. How I treat my coworker privately and publicly matters. We're always on this line because 
our actions do matter. Now, our actions don't determine our salvation, but after we've given our life to Jesus and we're saying, I want to walk, and yes, I'm a sinner and I need the cross, yes, okay, now how I live today is going to determine my longevity in my marriage, is going to determine my longevity of when my kids are older. Right now, I have a three-year-old and almost two-year-old. My kids have to see me. Someday, they're going to be 30 and 29, and if I've been not careful about this tightrope, maybe they won't want to. Maybe they'll just say, yeah, dad's not really someone I want to be around. How I live today determines longevity. We can do this in every single area of our lives. And this is a big, big theme in Scripture. Now, we're going to be in the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. What's a Deuteronomy? I'm glad you asked that. It's a little picture of four Moseses because there's four books before Deuteronomy. There's Genesis, the origin story. There's Exodus. People are in Egypt. They have to exit, have the Exodus leave. Leviticus, oh, our favorite book. Super fans in this church. We're all getting you little badges. I'm a Leviticus super fan. The law, okay, the Old Testament law, the blood and the sprinkling and the incense and the fragrance, okay. Numbers, counting the people of Israel and having them go through the wilderness. There's this whole thing where you literally take all the tribes and you orchestrate them and their different formation and you get them going. But what's a Deuteronomy? That's the fifth book. What's a Deuteronomy? What is a Deuteronomy? That's a weird word. Anybody ever go down the grocery store and buy a Deuteronomy? Anybody ever turn on the Deuteronomy channel on TV? It's not a word we ever encounter. Sometimes in the church, we have these words that you don't see anywhere else. What is a Deuteronomy? This is it. Okay, let's go to our next slide. Here's what a Deuteronomy is. It's the second law. Oh, great, David. You already took us through Leviticus. We did one law. We're doing a second one. Well, wait, not so fast. The Deuteronomy is the second law because at the end of the exile in the wilderness, so the Israelites were saved from famine in Egypt through Joseph's help. Then they lived 400 years and eventually became in captivity, slavery in Egypt. Then Moses decides he's going to kill someone, run away from justice, flee into the wilderness 40 years, talk to a bush. God's going to commission him, send him back, saying, let my people go. We get to Egypt. He leads the people out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness for 40 years of wandering. And now there's a new generation that's going to take shape. We heard a lot already today about looking at the younger generation, looking at the new generation. Deuteronomy is the second law, and it's specifically targeted to the new generation. Moses is saying, hey, here's how you follow God. Here's what we do. You want to have longevity? You want to not be like everybody else? Because everybody else, all these other nations, anybody know a Hittite? Anybody ever talk to a Hittite? They don't exist. Anybody ever talk to a Parasite? Do I have any Jebusites here? Anybody? No Jebusites. You sure? What about a Canaanite? Any Canaanite? No. Okay. So if you're going to have longevity, has anyone ever talked to a Jewish person? Okay, longevity, right? Okay, let's bear with me. So, so therefore, the second law clearly, okay, some longevity there. Now, the book of Deuteronomy, what's the Deuteronomy? Second law. Okay, three parts of Deuteronomy. First, we got this speech. First 11 chapters this is not where we are today, but it's helpful for you to know. Most famous part of Deuteronomy is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Have we heard this before? Okay. This was so important, especially for this new generation, that Moses says, hey, you're going to take little boxes. You're going to put the words in the little box. You're going to put it on your forehead. Have you ever seen a very Orthodox Jewish person with a phylactery? I have. If you ever go to New York City, you will see we have some of our very Orthodox Jewish friends will literally have the words of the Shema from this part of Moses' speech on their foreheads. Sometimes there's also a part in Deuteronomy where it says, write this above your house on the entrance. Good thing to write, right? Can you imagine you go home and it says, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your... Good reminder. Okay, so that's the first part. Then there's this middle part, and this is where we're going to be today. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the law. Now, it's the second law. We've heard the law once before in Leviticus, and now we have this opportunity to hear it for the next generation. We're going to look at this wonderful text that's going to really show Moses is going to say, hey, you got to deal with the people who serve. You got to deal with existing with people who don't believe the same things as you, and you got to deal with this idea of experience and profits. And that's in the second part of the law. And then finally, you have a farewell at the end of the book. Now, the big idea of this book, if you get nothing else from the sermon but want to be a biblical scholar, here's what, if someone asks you in the grocery store, what's a Deuteronomy? Somebody say, what's a Deuteronomy? Say, David, what's a Deuteronomy? Thank you. Okay, I'm glad you asked. It's the second law, and it really looks at obedience and devotion to the Lord only, not to other stuff. And we're going to see that today really clearly. Now, I want to give us a theological foundation for this because it's really, really clear. The Bible was written over a 1,500-year period at least, okay, on multiple continents by multiple authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when things are written in the Bible, it's not the final time chronologically it was written about. Deuteronomy is part of the first five books of the Bible, traditionally seen as written by Moses, this early part, okay? We have texts later in the New Testament that are going to deal with some of these same ideas. So then we have this question, okay, you got this law. Now, last I checked, did anybody, uh, where are my public school people at? I'm a child of public school. Where are my public, okay. Anybody ever go to public school and learn the law of Moses as a class? We don't, okay? So therefore, we have to... um, do we spend a whole bunch of time uh, taking... Where are my new members at? Where are my new members' class that have gone through recently? Okay, did we sit and go through the law of Moses with you? We did not. So what do I do with it? Do I throw it out? No, I don't. Do I totally ignore it? No. What do I do with this law of Moses, this ceremonial mosaic law? What do I do with it? This law of Moses teaches me something. It shows what's called God's moral law. Now, our theologian, uh, John Wesley, said this about God's moral law. It's the heart of God disclosed to man. It's principles of truth. It's not that I need to say, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I'm going to go back and follow all the hand washing and all the different things. Instead, what I say is, wow, Moses, what's the Deuteronomy, the second law, Moses is looking at the new generation saying obedience and devotion to the Lord only. 
That sounds good for my life. Obedience and devotion to God. And then let other things figure themselves out and then have everything else in its right place. The heart of God disclosed to man. So when I'm looking at things like the Old Testament law, you're going to see this first part of the text is going to deal with Levites. Anybody know a Levite? No, no. Maybe anybody have a friend named Levi? Maybe, maybe, right? That's the closest we have to, to a Levite. So you're going to see there's going to be this, all these instructions about how do I treat Levites. You can say that doesn't apply to me, but I'm going to say it does. If we look at God's moral law behind this, this is our theological idea, the heart of God disclosed to each of us. Therefore, when I look at Levites, I say it's got to be a principle behind it. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at that with Levites. What principle is that going to teach us? We're going to look at living in an area with people that serve other gods and do other things and have other rituals, and how do I live? And we're also going to look at this whole idea of prophets. So I'm going to read a little bit of the text, and we're going to look at a principle behind it. So we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Let's start on verse 1. I'm not going to give you the point yet. We'll wait on the point. Here it is. Verse 1, remember that the Levitical priest... That's confusing, David. What's a Levitical priest? Oh, the Bible's going to define it. Here we go. Look at this. That is the whole tribe of Levi will receive no allotment of land among the other tribes in Israel. Instead, the priests and Levites will eat from the special gifts given to the Lord, for that is their share. So here's our first principle. It's not that we have to take care of the Levites, but those who serve are never expendable. In this period, and this is our first point, those who serve are never expendable. Now, we learned this actually really well over the last couple years because there are people in the ecosystem of our society who at great personal cost serve in our hospitals, serve in our grocery stores, serve in our pharmacies. When we have a really bad storm, you know those Eversource people they send from Canada here? We really appreciate them. They're not expendable. I love those Eversource people. They're great. They're the difference between my loud generator that sounds like the apocalyptic end of the world and just having a normal house. Those who serve are never expendable. When we look at this time, you had these people called the Levites. The Levites are the sons of Levi. They're one of the tribes of Israel. Now, here's the thing. This society was divided in a different way than we are today. This, this, this society was literally divided into ethnic tribes, and they would all stay with their different ethnic tribes. So you had the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Dan, and the tribe of Asher. I won't do all 12. There was 12, sort of 13, because two half-tribes. This group, Levites, were pulled out from there, and they were specifically there for the law. So that if I needed to do... There's two main things we learned in Leviticus. There's a couple different ways we do our offerings. We would do, I'm sorry, or thank you to God. So if we do an I'm sorry offering to God, it would involve a Levitical priest taking a whole bunch of time to do all these different things and to help us out. Now, this would take hours and people would line up to do it. So the Levitical priest would have to make this their full-time gig. But it didn't really bring in income, so therefore that person had to be taken care of in the society. That's what Moses was dealing with. 
you'll fast forward to my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Nehemiah. At the very end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah thinks he's made all these reforms, but he's frustrated because the people have once again forgotten to take care of the Levitical priest. And so what happens is literally they decide not to feed the Levitical priests and give them their share. So they have to leave the temple and go out, and they have to go out into the fields, and there's no one left to take care of the temple. And so the whole ecosystem collapses. It makes me think of bees. When we think of the bee... Why is the bee so important? What does the bee do in the ecosystem? Pollinates, okay? Now, here's something, not from David, I'm not a bee expert. Uh, we do have a bee expert here. I told her to fact check me at the end. But um, I love Gail and Gail's honey. Shout out to Gail. Hi, Gail. Um, so she's going to fact check me if I get anything wrong about bees. But I'm going to give you a quote from the USDA, so I think I'm okay. Here's what they say about bees. In the United States... More than one-third of all crop production, 90 crops ranging from nuts to berries to flowering vegetables, requires insect pollination. Managed honeybee colonies are our primary pollinators. They literally just serve. The bees serve to pollinate things. So we have to be very careful to protect those that pollinate, those who serve. This is the same idea. It's not that you're going to run down the street and see a Levite. It's that there are people in our community who serve. It's not that they're fragile and we have to protect them. It's that we have to remember they're not expendable and remember that like the bee, they're an incredibly important part of our society. The people that are the custodians at the school, the people that are the nurses at 2 a.m. at the emergency room, these people matter in our society. They're like that bee. And this is what God's moral law, the heart, of God, the heart of God revealed to each of us, this is what it shows us, is that those who serve aren't expendable. But what about in our family? Our, here's my question for you. Your marriage is an ecosystem. Your family is an ecosystem. Your church is an ecosystem. There are people here who got here really, really, really early to run cables and to do all sorts of different things. There's cameras here. If you're here from home, there's cameras here. That's an ecosystem. There are people who maintain that ecosystem. In your community, you drive by and you hear sirens. The, the people that are doing the sirens, the, the, the fire, right? The fire department, like you got you to gotta put people in the fire department to do that. It's all an ecosystem. So here's my question. In my marriage, in my family, in my workplace, in my church, Am I treating those who serve as expendable or am I taking time and saying, wow, you matter, thank you, and not just saying thank you for what you do, but seeing how I can serve those who serve? That's a biblical idea. Jesus came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve. Are we doing the same thing and saying the people who serve are not expendable? So there's principle one. Here's our next principle. We'll look at the text first. If you jump down, next part, so there's three main parts of this passage. First part deals with Le Levitical priest. Second part is going to deal with what do I do when I live in a world that doesn't always share my values? Anybody ever feel that way with today? What do I do in a world that doesn't share my values? Okay, verse 9. When you enter the land uh, the Lord your God is giving you, be very careful not to imitate the detestable customs of the nations living there. So here's the next principle. Peer pressure isn't just for middle schoolers. Who remembers middle school? 
Oh, fun time. I, I like to go back to middle school a lot because it's one of the most vulnerable times, and at our worst moments, we tend to default back to that middle school mentality. Can you agree? We tend to really find ourselves there. Now, why was middle school so different? Because we suddenly, even though we were always unlike everybody else, suddenly we had this awareness we were unlike everybody else. Suddenly it wasn't, oh, I just am doing my thing and I'm wearing my light-up shoes, but now I'm wearing my light-up shoes, I'm noticing people are laughing at it, I think it's at me and now I don't want to wear my light-up shoes. That's the different thing. Okay, and so sometimes it's really, really hard to understand the ancient world because here's, some of the detestable customs are surprising. So the things that all the other nations did, who has seen a Jebusite? Anybody seen a Jebusite? I joked about this. Parasite? Hittite? Okay, they're gone. Okay, so longevity matters. Okay, so in the ancient world, you had this thing where people would want to sacrifice their firstborn child, child sacrifice. And you could say, David, that makes no sense at all. Why would they want to do that? That doesn't get it. Okay, so let's put that, I'm going to explain it with something from my middle school life. Who loves Braveheart? Any Braveheart super fans here? Wow, Braveheart has really died over the last couple of years. If I asked this during the Wild at Heart, remember the Wild at Heart book? Uh, that book was like all about Braveheart. Now you go in the church and you ask about Braveheart and people are like, yeah, that's a lousy movie. Not, not until Braveheart. Okay, but regardless. So I loved Braveheart and apparently I'm the only one. Thank you, Tom. Tom and I and Nick liked Braveheart. No one else did. But I loved Braveheart. I thought it was amazing. Scotland, William Wallace, freedom, the face paint, the whole thing. Okay, bear with me. Now, so my parents take me up to North Conway. Where are my North Conway superfans? We drive up there. There we go. So you don't, you don't buy into the Braveheart, but you love the North Conway, fine. You ski people, I don't get you. Summer in North Conway, not ski season. I've never gone skiing in my life. Zero times. Also never been golfing. Another story. I've never been bass fishing either. So here's the thing. We go up to North Conway, and we go to a Scottish import store. And I'm excited for the Scottish import store. And my parents say, you know, David, we're going to get you some new clothes this trip. And I find a sheepskin shirt that I really, really want. Now, I'm in seventh grade, okay? I'm in seventh grade, okay? Remember seventh grade? Now, my parents say, you know, David, um, we'll buy you a more expensive shirt. We'll take you to L.L. Bean. We'll take you to Abercrombie & Fitch, wherever you want to go. You're in seventh grade. Like, people aren't going to get your sheepskin shirt. You're going to get bullied. Like, don't do that. No, Dad, you don't understand. I'm so self-defined. I don't care what people think. I love my sheepskin shirt. It's so exciting. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Either they'll love it, or I just, I don't worry about what anyone else thinks. It's not a big deal. So they're like, okay, fine. We'll buy you your sheepskin shirt. We're not sure why, but okay. So they do. They're supportive. And so I get it, and I'm all proud, and we check it out, and the guy behind the cash, re cash register looks at me like, really? Like, this is for like... This is for, like, 60-year-old people from Scotland. I mean, fine, good. Like, I'll sell you the shirt, but, like, are you sure? Okay. L.O. Bean sound. Okay, fine. Okay. So I buy the shirt. We get home from vacation. It's Monday after vacation. I put my shirt on. I walk into seventh grade. How many minutes do you think I make it before I go to the bathroom, change into a sweatshirt, and put it in a locker, and I've never seen the shirt since? 
like 10 minutes at the most, probably eight. Now, why did I feel that way? I felt unlike everybody else. In my sheepskin shirt in seventh grade, I felt unlike everybody else. That is exactly how people who did not participate in child sacrifice or sorcery or witchcraft or spells or incantations, that's how they felt. They felt as weird not doing those things as I felt wearing that shirt. Are you with me? Because it's hard for us to think of the ancient world. It felt super uncomfortable for them not to do it. They felt like the odd one out. They felt like no one else was like them because it's easier to be like this. Do you remember the Harvard cheating scandal? Like 10, 11 years ago, remember that? Shocking because like half of the class, there was I believe 257 people in the class, 125 of them in a group participation all cheat together. Now what do you think was the main rationale they said why they wanted to do it? What was the main excuse? Well, it's this kind of, everyone always does this, they've always done this, this is what they do, it's not a big deal because it's accepted behavior. Well, clearly it's not. Clearly they all got busted and people lost their ability to go to Harvard and it was a national news story and all sorts of stuff. But it reminds us that it's hard when we feel unlike others because peer pressure isn't just for middle schoolers. But when we think of longevity, when we think of consistency, character, when we think of this opportunity to live a competent life, to follow God, and to not have this be a flash in the pan, peer pressure isn't just for middle schoolers. There's going to be times where we're going to feel unlike others because that's part of what serving God is and following Christ in our life. That's part of the gospel message. That is part of the deal. There are going to be certain things that we're going to do people aren't going to understand. The other day, I'm in a restaurant in Plymouth with my children and their friends, wonderful friends, not necessarily church friends, and it comes time we're about to eat. Now, we always pray with our children. Ruby always usually does grace right now. She likes praying. She's three years old. She, it's a really big deal to her. Sometimes she puts the word pickle in the prayer, but you, no, she really does. She says, in Jesus' name, I pray, amen, pickle. It doesn't really make sense, but it's cute. Bear with me, because here's the moment I want to show you that peer pressure isn't just for middle schoolers, and it's not just for you. It's for your pastors, too. I had a moment where I had to decide, do we just not pray? We always do it. It makes us unlike people. We don't do it for 19 minutes, but we do pray publicly aloud in a restaurant. Do we not do it? Or do I just say, you know what we do? So food comes, and I turn to Ruby, and I say, will you say a prayer? And she says her prayer, no pickle this time. And then we continue going. But even for 30 seconds, I felt unlike others. We live with that tension. That tension is okay. So here's what I ask you. God's moral law, the heart of God revealed to each of us. Are you struggling with this today? Are you saying, wow, there are things that I feel unlike others because peer pressure or social pressure is a reminder that who is our authority? Not the approval of others, but God. Okay? That's a big thing. Now here's our final one. We go in the text. So Moses is given this. He's looking at this next generation. He's saying, hey, what's the Deuteronomy? Second law. Moses is saying, all right. So you get that we got to take care of those who serve. They're not expendable. You get that there's going to be times where you're going to be unlike the other nations. Yeah, you're, you're not going to wear 
do all your stuff where you do your child sacrifice and whatever. You're just not going to do it. You're going to feel unlike them, and you got to deal with it. Peer pressure isn't just for middle schoolers. Now let's look at this final part of the text. Jump all the way down, verse 21. You may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? Because we have this wonderful section where Moses says, hey, I'm old. 120 years old, by the way. Any, any 120-year-old here? I, in the other service, I asked, what was the oldest person we knew? The oldest we knew was about 104. Does anyone know someone older than 104? Probably not. That's pretty amazing. I see a hand back there. But So Moses is like 120 years old. He's coming to the end of his life, and he says, hey, you're going to have a new prophet. You're going to have a new person that's going to be the mouthpiece of God. But after that, and it's going to be Joshua, but after that, you're going to have other people again too, but then there's going to be times where people are going to want to be your prophet. There's going to be people who say, yeah, I've got, I've got the word of God for you. Here you go. And then you've got to have discernment. This is my point. The principle here is discernment, and I'm a little silly with this, is so underrated. Discernment, the ability to look at things and decide which is God's way, which am I going to do, and which is not, so underrated. In the Old Testament, prophets were not kings. There was supposed to be a balance. The prophet was the voice of experience. And then the prophet had to make sure that you did not counteract what was in the first five books. Remember my four little Moseses and what's a Deuteronomy? First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's called the Torah, okay? The Pentateuch, the first five books. That's the law. That's God's way. Now, there's these other people. I give you a little sheet each week. So if you look on your third question on the back of your sheet, it's going to list a bunch of different prophets. You'll see that after Moses, there's Joshua. There's all these other wonderful people. I list some of them for you. There's Isaiah. There's Jeremiah. I love Amos. Amos is great. There's all these different prophets. They all had to come in and to speak to the experience of what was happening but if they said anything that at all contradicted the Torah, they were a false prophet. And so you'll see that the prophets in the Old Testament do not contradict the Torah. The five little Moseses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, we have things in our life where we have experiences and we wonder, is this real? Is this of God? In the ancient world, they had prophets. And so you would have to look and you would have to say, Okay, is the prophet lining up with the Torah, the five little Moseses, the Scripture? Okay, is it lining up? Now, in our lives, we don't necessarily have new prophets because what we understand is that the Bible is complete. Everything you need is right there. It's finished work. It's God's complete special revelation to us. The gospel message is there. Everything necessary for salvation is there. So, we still have things that are going to translate our experience today. And we have to now discern, what do I do with this? Where do I go? We have these moments in our lives. So then the question becomes, how do I do that? How do I figure out, there's this thing called the Asbury outpouring that just happened. We send people there. We look at it and we say, okay, I don't know. Is this of God is it not? How do I figure it out? Well, here's how we find out. If we take Scripture and we make Scripture the authority, 
And we look at it and we say that Scripture is the authority and it's going to allow me to follow it and Scripture is not contradicted by what is happening, then I can say this is real. This is a real experience. At the Asbury outpouring, do you know what they do? They start with Scripture. Do you know what else they do? They read Scripture a whole bunch of times. Do you know what else they do? They say, this is God's Word, and I can believe it. They don't do extra-biblical stuff. In our lives, when we have these experiences, discernment is so underrated, and our litmus test is, does it work with what's written in Scripture or not? So here's the thing. What's our key to longevity? I'm going to throw a couple things up. Because we always have this line. I want you to imagine this line. We have a sanctuary. And it's wonderful because it divides our, our building in half. So you got this line right here. I've got this slide with a line here. On one side, you got longevity. On one side, you got losing. Now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about losing in life, making the wrong choice and saying, wow, that was a fail. Anybody ever have this? Wow, today, yesterday, not today. Today's a good day. We're all here. Today's a good day. Yesterday was a fail. Not longevity, that was losing. And so I want to look at these points real quick with this idea. So here's the thing. If I throw someone expendable under the bus, I'm on this line. We'll go to the next slide here. So if I throw someone expendable under the bus, I'm on the key between longevity and losing. There's this thing that happened where one of the biggest churches in our country, the pastor Unfortunately, because of hubris and ego and all sorts of things, eventually the church blew up. It doesn't even exist anymore. And he talked about how his church was a bus. And he said, I have plans for this city, and if it doesn't work, we're going to run people over with the bus. And he literally said in the training, uh, by God's grace and will, hopefully we'll have a mountain of bodies by the end of it and we'll have done great stuff. That's not how we live in our marriage. That's not how we parent. That's not how we live in this church, in our community. We're not a bus to run people over. Nobody's expendable. Those bees are not expendable. The people in our lives, not expendable. The people who serve, not expendable. The Levites in the ancient world, not expendable. So instead, I can say no one who serves is expendable. Now here's another one. If I sacrifice character to be like everyone else, anybody want to go back to middle school? We don't want to go back to middle school, okay? I don't want to sacrifice character to be like everyone else. There's things I'm going to do that are going to make me feel different. That's okay. I'm going to serve God. Because instead, here's what I can say. Peer pressure or social pressure is a reminder that only God's approval matters. And here's our final one. So here's the line between longevity and losing. If I'm unwilling to vet experiences with Scripture, if I just treat the Bible as a nice prop that I have in my house, it's just a nice prop that I have in my house. If I say this is God's word and I believe it and has authority in my life, then I start to able to make sense of some things. Then I start to be able to say, wow, longevity is possible because the people in the Old Testament made some of the same mistakes that I contend to make. So here's my question for us. How am I living today? Because how I live today determines my longevity. It's not about getting everything right. It's not about being perfect. It's about I have the opportunity to serve God faithfully. I have the opportunity to say there are 
people in my life who serve, and they're not expendable. I have the opportunity to say, yes, there's going to be times that serving God is going to make me feel different than other people. And I have the opportunity to say, yes, I have the Bible. This is God's word, and I believe it. 